What are some of your favorite worship songs? Think about a few of those for just a moment. And consider the lyrics to those songs. Oftentimes, they're, they're songs of hope, right? Songs of, songs of rescue, songs of salvation, songs of joy. But let me ask this question. It's going to seem strange to you at first, but, but believe me, it fits where we're going this morning. When's the last time you sang a song about God's judgment? When's, when's the last time you sang a song about the great and terrible day of the Lord? While there may be some, I know there are some written today on this subject, and there certainly have been over history, my guess is they're not making any top ten lists. That's not always been the case. Many of the early hymn writers understood the importance of using songs to instruct God's people in the truth. Many of them were around the 1700s at a time when the church desperately needed solid doctrine, good, strong biblical teaching. And many of these early hymn writers in the 1700s, they were preachers and, and theologians. They knew that songs were easy to remember and teach others. So they thought songs with sound doctrine written to instruct God's people to grow in godliness were, were needed. So hymn writers, they, they wrote songs to teach God's people valuable truths about God and about man and sin and salvation. And a topic they viewed as being extremely important is this topic of the wrath and judgment of God. And some of the ancient hymns were written on that subject. One is entitled Day of Wrath, O Day of Mourning. Anybody ever heard of that song? Let me share some of the lyrics. Day of wrath, O day of mourning, see fulfilled the prophet's warning. Heaven and earth in ashes burning. Death is struck and nature quaking. All creation is awaking to its judge and answer making. When the judge his seat attaineth and each hidden deed arraigneth, nothing unavenged remaineth. What shall I, frail man, be pleading? Who for me be interceding when the just are mercy needing? When was the last time you heard that song sung? Imagine you're the, it's your first time to lead worship at a church and you start the service. Church, we're going to begin with the wonderful, worshipful hymn, Day of Wrath, O Day of Mourning. There's a reason why that sounds strange to us today. There's a reason why we have not heard songs like this. It's the same reason why we're not familiar with and have not heard sermons from a book like Zephaniah. It's because focusing on God's anger towards sin and His wrath towards sinners is not a popular topic. We would rather focus on the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the salvation of God. And don't hear me say that we shouldn't focus on those things. We absolutely should. Zephaniah focuses on those things. But we must also not neglect this clear and common teaching in Scripture on God's wrath and judgment. In fact, to properly understand God's mercy 
His grace, His salvation. We must accurately understand how sin angers God and how He has promised to pour out His wrath on the unrepentant and unregenerate, those set against Him in sin. You cannot get away from this subject in Scripture. We said last week, God has made it clear that His judgment is coming soon. The day of the Lord is fast approaching. For those not trusting in Christ alone for salvation, that day will be an awful day when God's wrath will be poured out in full. Believers, this message is a message for us. It's a message we need to hear. So let's focus on this message this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Zephaniah chapter 1. In our text for this morning, the topic of God's prophet is the judgment of God. He is going to explain the reality of God's judgment, the reason for God's judgment, and what our response should be in light of God's coming judgment. Notice point number one, the reality of God's judgment. In the book of Zephaniah, God is upset. He is. He is angry. He is angry at the wickedness of the surrounding nations, the wickedness of His own people. God is angry with the wicked in Zephaniah, and as a result, He states through His prophet that He is bringing judgment. That is an inescapable teaching in this book. The only way for you to miss that teaching is for you to skip this book. That's it. Notice a few things we observe about the judgment of God. Notice first, God's judgment is severe. Look at Zephaniah 1, 2 through 3. God says through His prophet Zephaniah, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. God does not mince words here, folks. You don't need a PhD in Hebrew to know that God is angry. Notice the verbs used here. Sweep away. Used three times in, in two verses. The reference here is to a strong storm wind that will carry everything away. He says, everything from the face of the earth, man and beast, birds and fish. Where else are we told about man and beast, birds and fish? Yeah, Genesis 1, right? What's God doing in Genesis 1? He's creating. Here in Zephaniah 1, God is saying He is going to undo what He did in Genesis chapter 1. He says, I'm going to wipe out, I'm going to remove all living things I created and, and placed on the earth. That is severe, isn't it? God, through His prophet Zephaniah, is using harsh poetic language here to show that He is going to bring life as His people know it to an end. Now, you need to know, with the writings of the prophets, there is what is called immediate fulfillment and future fulfillment. 
fulfillment. This is very important when interpreting the prophets. Many just want to go to the future, but there's some immediate things that are about to go down. God promises a sure and certain judgment coming soon to His people Israel. And He also promises a future judgment to come for everyone on the last day. And I believe both are in view here in Zephaniah as they are in the minor prophet books as well. We know that God delivered on His promise to His people to bring down His hand of judgment on them. He delivered on that promise. We know that Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians and their fall was great. What makes you think that He won't make good on His promise to bring down future judgment on all the wicked, unrepentant, unregenerate people in the last day? Listen, it's very, very important. The reality and the certainty of the past judgments of God should convince us of the reality and the certainty of His future judgment to come. If you don't believe judgment's coming, you have fallen into the trap of those inhabitants of Jerusalem who didn't believe it was coming either. And His, his message of judgment, listen, it's His mercy. We've talked about that, haven't we? It warns, it's a warning to us that a future judgment, a greater judgment is coming, so we got to be ready. God clearly tells us in His Word that the great and terrible day of the Lord is coming someday soon. It will be a dreadful day of devastation and destruction for all those set against God in sin. It is a day when God's anger against sin will result in His wrath being poured out on sinful humanity. Skip down to verses 14 through 17. The prophet says, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. You ever witness something really scary, terrifying, and you close your ears and, and your eyes as well? You don't want to hear it or see it? We're, we're told in that day that the sound will be enough to send chills down your spine as the mightiest of men fall and cry out in terror and anguish. Verse 15 a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, nothing light, nothing uplifting about that day for those who have rejected the Lord. Verse 16, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements, the, the mighty and the proud who carry on as if they're just going to remain in power. They're not going to be able to stand in this day. They're going to be brought to ruin. God says, verse 17, I'll bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. I'm going to severely disable them. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Many will die in that day. They'll be brought to ruin, destroyed. Why? Middle of verse 17. Because they have sinned against the Lord. Does God take sin seriously? Say yes. Don't believe anyone who tells you that he doesn't. He does. God's judgment against the wicked is severe. It's also certain. That's the next point. Notice the certainty of God's judgment. You know how many times the phrase I will is found in chapter 1? 11 times. 
It's used over 20 in the book. While we know it's the Babylonians who defeat Judah, Zephaniah doesn't mention them by name. When we were in Habakkuk, he said that God's instrument of judgment is the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Zephaniah chooses to focus in on the fact that God is doing this thing. He is doing it through them. They are, they are merely pawns in His plan, His instruments for judgment. We learn in verse 12 that His people had convinced themselves God was not going to do anything concerning their sin. They say it very clearly. The Lord will not do good to us, nor will He do ill, nor will He do bad. God's response, look at it. I will utterly sweep away. I will sweep away. I will cut off. I will stretch out. I will cut off. I will punish. I will punish. I will search. I will punish. I will bring distress. Any question about what God's going to do here? No, His judgment is certain. The repetition of God's prophet here is God's way of stressing. You can bank on this. It's coming. His judgment is severe, it's certain, it's also near. God's judgment is near. Look back up in verses 6 and 7. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him, verse 7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Now skip down to verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near. And hastening fast. Near, near, near. Is God trying to tell us something? Don't need a degree in Hebrew. It's near. Zephaniah is speaking to God's people here and he's telling them, you who have turned back from following the Lord, you who are not seeking Him or inquiring of Him, while you think that God will not do good or bad to you, I'm here to tell you that His judgment is coming. It's coming soon. The day of the Lord is near. When I was young and acting up, at times my mom would call my dad. My dad would come home early from work. I knew he was coming. His coming was near. It was certain, and it was going to be severe. That's what Zephaniah is telling God's people here. He's saying God is coming. The time of his coming is soon. It's near. Then notice verse 7, he tells them, be silent. Be silent before the Lord. Be quiet. Consider what's about to go down. I'll tell you, when my mom promised my dad was coming, I'd get real quiet. I'd go to my room, I'd think about what I had done and dread the moment that door opened and my dad walked through it. That's what Zephaniah is getting at here. Verse 7, be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guest. Zephaniah lets God's people know that they may have forgotten God, but God had not forgotten them. Notice he makes mention here in verse 7 of this event, the day of the Lord, and lets him know how it's going to go down. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and He has consecrated guests. Who is the sacrifice and who are the Lord's guests? Well, consider the context. Who is going to be struck down here? 
God's people, Judah, right, for forsaking the Lord. Zephaniah lets him know that God has prepared them like a sacrifice. He has prepared them for slaughter, and the invited guests are the Babylonians. We learn that from, from other places in Scripture that speak on this event. We learn that in the book of Habakkuk. They are his consecrated guests. They are his chosen instruments for judgment. They are the ones he uses to punish his people. His judgment is severe. His judgment is certain. His judgment is near. His judgment is also extensive. That's the next point. Zephaniah lets God's people, Judah, know that one of the reasons the day of the Lord will be so great and terrible is because no one who has set themselves against the Lord and continues in disobedience, who has forsaken Him completely, will be exempt on that great day of judgment. Notice first, the leaders will be punished in that day. Look at verse 8. God has something for the wicked leaders. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. Because members of the royal family in Jerusalem place their trust in, in foreign allies and long to be aligned with them and dress like them and worship like them. Instead of being honored guests at the Lord's feast, they would be the ones sacrificed because they had not been set apart and holy unto God. They did not seek Him. They did not long to be with Him and live for Him. They wanted to be like the surrounding nations who were enemies of His. Not just the royal officials, those in the household of the king as well, and also His servants, their servants. Look at it, verse 9. On that day I'll punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. He is speaking here of the servants, of these prominent people in society who follow in the wicked footsteps of their master and pillage and steal from their neighbors, sinning against them both physically and financially. We're, we're reminded here that when our relationship with God suffers vertically, so does our relationship with one another horizontally. We see that all throughout Scripture, don't we? Adam and Eve sinned against God, right? And then man begins sinning against one another. What happens to their sons? Cain and Abel. What does Cain do? He murders his brother. When our relationship with God suffers, so does our relationship with one another. And that's their problem as well. They're sinning against each other. In verses 10 through 11, we see this spiral move even further downward. And expand to include all the residents of the city. Look at verses 10 through 11. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate. That's located in the northern sector of Jerusalem. A wail from the second quarter, northwest temple area. A loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out Silver are cut off. This is in the marketplace, in the business district, on every corner of the city. No place to escape. In verse 4, Zephaniah says that God will stretch out His hand against everyone. All the inhabitants of the city. In the Bible Knowledge Commentary says on these verses, Zephaniah noted that lamentations would arise from every quarter of Jerusalem. God would judge them all and they would be ruined. Notice how thorough 
God is in, in searching out those in the city. Look at verse 12. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. And I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good nor will He do ill. Also those who sinned against one another, those who pillaged their, their neighbors. Verse 13, look at it. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. He says, while they continue on, as if I'm not going to do anything to them, as if they have all the time in the world and live, as if they're just going to live forever in prosperity, that will not be the case. They will soon be brought to ruin. Verse 13, again, though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. God's judgment is severe, certain, near, extensive, and get this, inescapable. God's judgment is inescapable for those set against Him in sin. While there are a number of people who acknowledge the certainty of God's judgment, many believe they'll be exempt from it because of who they are, who they know, what they believe, what they have, and the way in which they've lived their lives. Zephaniah in chapter 1 bursts that bubble. He lets them know no matter who they are, no matter what they have, no matter who they know, no matter what great position they're in, no matter the amount of wealth they have obtained in this life, if they have forsaken the Lord, if they, have, if they continue in disobedience, they forfeit salvation in their promised judgment. That's what he says very, very clearly. God's judgment is inescapable for those people in that day. Look at verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on that day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Yow, right? Zephaniah informs his people here that all the money in the world will not be able to hold back God's judgment. This is a message that mankind has needed to hear all throughout history, but we need it today, don't we? Because there are many in our world today, some who come to places like this, Sunday after Sunday, who are living their lives like the Jews in the southern kingdom in Zephaniah's day, live theirs, living as if they have all the time in the world, as if God will do nothing to them, neither good nor bad, living as if His return is a long way off, and if they will somehow be exempt from His judgment, if or when He comes. God tells us very clearly from His prophet here, that His judgment is coming. It's coming someday soon. That someday might be today. And on that day there will be no exceptions, no escape for those going at life on their own. Those trusting in their status, in their possessions, in this world. Their empty acts of religious devotion. None of those things will save one from the judgment to come. That's the reality. Next, the reason for God's judgment. We've established that God's judgment is certain, severe, inescapable. You would have to completely skip over chapter 1 to, to miss that. 
But what's the cause of God's judgment? Let's look at it. Notice a few given here. Number one, idolatry. Look at verses 4 and 5. God says through Zephaniah, I will stretch out my hands against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. Notice first who this is directed toward, Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We'll learn in this study that while God is, is angry with the wickedness of the nations surrounding his people as well, he is especially angry at the wickedness of his own people, so much so that he addresses them two different times in this book when speaking on his judgment to come. He addresses it in chapter 1-1 through chapter 2, verse 3, and also in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I'm giving you some answers for your quiz you're going to take at the end, okay? So keep that in mind. But it's important for you to know that's, that's who God is, is focused on when he, when he talks about his judgment to come. God makes it clear here that he is going to come down hard on his people. The stretching out of his hand indicates that he is going to strike them. He is going to cut them off from the land of promise. They will go into exile. Why? Because of their idolatry. Why does this anger God? Because it violates his command. 1 Exodus 20. He says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And the reason why they were to have no other idols in God's presence, which we established, his presence is everywhere, so they're to have no other gods anywhere. Is because God is creator of everyone and everything. Therefore, he is over everyone and everything. He has no rivals. There are to be none beside him. He alone is God. And he alone is worthy of all of our, our, our worship and praise. The inhabitants of Jerusalem had missed this. In verses 4 through 5, we learn that they were guilty of Baal worship. Now, this was a temptation, a struggle for God's people throughout their history. Baal was believed to be a fertility god who, if appeased, would grant one healthy life, abundance of healthy crops, and healthy children. Now, to a Jewish person, that was music to their ears because they lived in an agrarian society. And they were dependent upon fruitful crops to live and a big family to care for their fields and make provisions for the family. Notice also they bowed down to creation. Worshiping the host of the heavens from their roofs. Dr. Stephen Miller in his commentary on Zephaniah says, Devotees would ascend to their rooftops and bow down before the sun, moon, and stars. In the New City Catechism, which is a book we have available in our bookstore, it defines idolatry in this way. I love this definition of idolatry. Trusting in created things rather than the Creator." For our hope and happiness, significance, and security. That's exactly what they were doing. Not only were they guilty of idolatry, notice they're also guilty of duplicity. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal 
And the names of the idolatrous priest along with the priest. Notice the priests are numbered with the idolatrous priests. That's a big no-no. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet swear by Milcom. They were doing both. The priest, that's the Levitical priest. They were worshiping like the idolatrous priest, the pagan priest. I read where there were a second class of priest at this time, appointed by the, the, the kings of Judah. They were non-Levitical priests, priests outside the tribe of Levi. And, and they were all duplicitous in worship, meaning they were taking worship of the true God and this false worship, and they were just blending it together. Trying to, trying to hedge their religious bets, cover their bases. They were swearing to the Lord and also to Milcom, also known as Molech. He was the god of the Ammonites. And to appease him, people had to sacrifice their own children. They were laying down babies to put them to death to appease, to appease this god. Horrible, right? So think about this. They were trying to worship the one true God while also worshiping his creation, appeasing Baal, trying to appease Molech. See why God's angry? And folks, don't make the mistake of thinking that the idolatry in our day is any less ugly and evil. Think for a moment of our pursuit of wealth and power and fame, think about what we sacrifice on those altars. What do people lay down, neglect, forsake, sacrifice for these things? Marriages have been sacrificed on those altars. They are every day. Families have been destroyed on those altars. Our relationship with the Lord has been laid aside for worldly pursuits. Things haven't changed in our day. While we might think we're more sophisticated, you know, we don't subject ourselves to, to these primitive practices. The, the vileness and ugliness of our idolatry remains. And get this, so does God's anger against it. God doesn't want us to live our lives in this way. He makes it clear in His Word. He does not share the stage with anyone or any. Thing. The one true and living God has no co-regents, no joint heirs, no rivals. He leaves room for no other beside him and will judge all those who try. Notice what else they're guilty of. Apathy. Skip down to verse 12. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. And I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good nor will he do ill. Zephaniah indicates here that, that Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the religious leaders in the southern kingdom, in addition to being idolatrous and duplicitous, were also indifferent. They were complacent. They were apathetic, saying in their hearts, God will not do bad and He won't do good to us. They believed God was, God was fine either way. He was going to just leave them alone if they left Him alone. Oh, how wrong they were. Just read the rest of the book. There are many today in the same boat set against God in sin and they have convinced themselves of this great lie that God does not care one way or another about what they do with their lives. Spiritual apathy is a huge problem in our world today. Would you agree with me on that? 
It's a huge problem. There are many in our world today who struggle with apathy because they have a wrong view of God. They believe He's apathetic. They think in their hearts, it really doesn't matter if I live for God or not. He doesn't care either way. I know this mentality. I've heard it. I've heard it. They say, I'm not opposed to God. I'm not an enemy of His. I'm just indifferent toward Him. I don't have issue with Him one way or another. Therefore, He should have no issue with me. He will not do good or bad toward me. They believe God is apathetic. They believe God is a do-nothing God. That's the way many view God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Just read the book. Read Zephaniah 1 again. God is bringing judgment. It is certain. It is severe. It will be soon. It is extensive. It is inescapable for those set against Him in sin. So what are we to do? Praise be to God it doesn't end there. Amen. Let's end by discussing what we're to do. What's our response to be to God's judgment? Look at Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3. The prophet says, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord. All you humble of the land who do His just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. You want a message of mercy? Here it is. You ever heard people say Old Testament's all anger and wrath in the New Testament? God's all mercy, grace, and love? No. He is judgment and wrath in the New Testament and mercy, grace, and love. And He is judgment and wrath in the Old Testament and He is mercy, grace, and love. The reason why is because God doesn't change. Not in the least bit. Here's a message of mercy, folks. Zephaniah makes it clear that in light of God's coming judgment, we should respond by gathering before the Lord. This is a call to corporate repentance for a nation. He is saying, repent in response to your sinfulness. Repent in response to your shame. Repent. Gather together before the Lord in humility before the great and terrible day comes, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, which he repeats for emphasis. Seek the Lord in humility. Don't come to Him arrogantly with your religious resume in, in hand. Thinking it's a mixture of what you do and what God has done for your right standing with God. He says, come humbly with nothing in your hands. No confidence in yourself. To escape the terrible day of judgment coming. To be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. We must come humbly before the Lord in repentance and faith. We must seek the Lord of glory. Talked about this last time. This is the gospel right here. The only escape from God is God. He is the only way we can escape from His wrath is by trusting in Him, looking to Him, gathering before Him, repenting of sin and looking to Him in faith. Notice He calls for us to seek righteousness. Now you know and I know that's not our righteousness, right? Because my Bible tells me there is none righteous, no, not one. 
God is calling for us to seek out an alien righteousness, a righteousness that we don't have, a righteousness that we desperately need, a righteousness that only God can give and that He has given us through His Son, Jesus Christ. He sent His Son, Christ, to live the perfect life for us, to die as our substitute and perfect sacrifice so that if we believe on Him, we can be made righteous in Him. God has provided a way of rescue for us through His Son. Because of Christ's life and death and resurrection, we who repent of our sin and believe on Him and trust in Him alone for salvation are forgiven and restored to the right relationship with God. That's why we sing, Worthy is the Lamb who once was slain. To receive all glory, honor, and praise, right? With His blood, He purchased us for God. That's why we sing that song of praise. Because He's our only hope. Have you forsaken your sin? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? If not, I urge you to today. Forsake your sin. Trust in Christ alone for your salvation so that you might be saved on the great day of the Lord. So that that day would not be a day of wrath and ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. But would be a day of joy. A day of glory. A day of rescue. A day of vindication, a day of restoration. Let's pray.